0: Hello and welcome back to episode four of the From the Start podcast, a series of podcasts that chronicles normal people doing incredible things. And when I reached out to this person via social media, I'll be honest, it was a bit of a hopeful tweet that I didn't know if he'd get back to me, if I'm really honest, because this individual was catapulted kind of into the limelight after leaving his job in London to fight against ISIS in Syria. So I thought there would be nobody better for episode four, then uh massa gifford uh, welcome to the podcast master
1: thank you it's good to be on
0: yeah it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to to welcome you here so i think i think a good a good place to start is to kind of delve into you as a person and um mm-hmm. i listened to an interview with you yesterday and one of the first things i picked up on was a, as, as a 19 year old sort of student you went out to zimbabwe to to sort of petition against robert Mugabe. so how, you know how does a 19 year old uh sort of lad from cambridge I uh, end up in zimbabwe
1: well that was an interesting story well because i went to loughborough university um i did politics international relations um had um my mind was in two places one perhaps to work in politics or like I don't know, the foreign office or something try and get involved with something to do with my degree there was also a draw towards the army as well uh, to perhaps um, go through sandhurst after leaving uh, after leaving Loughborough. Um, and while I was there, I decided to actually start pushing myself out of my comfort zone, actually go to places where I can actually make a difference. And in 2009, sort of um, Zimbabwe was going through a very difficult time. Um, that was my last year at university, uh, the year I graduated. Um, so, and 2008 as well, sorry. So it was actually 2008 that I went, uh, 2009 when I came back and, um, uh, Zimbabwe was in a terrible place. It was being ripped apart. Mugabe um, was on the war path. There was talk of another Gurukundi, which is uh, a terrible incident that happened in the 1980s where uh, tens of thousands of people were murdered. And um, with the chance of that happening, I wanted to go out and work with the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change. So I just popped an email email over to them. 19 uh, year old guy wanting to go out and join them as an intern. And I was surprised that they got back to me. So I spent several months, um, a fair few months in Zimbabwe, working for the MDC to campaign against Robert Mugabe. So yeah, talk about throwing yourself in the deep end.
0: Absolutely. Do, do you think that was possibly the, the start of obviously what went on after with, you know, your sort of drive and passion to go and help people who wanted help?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, um, when I had gone to uni, I had immediately joined the Young Conservatives and stuff. And I started working locally for a a woman that was a minister. She's now left politics, Nicola Morgan. I don't know if you remember her. She was the Education Secretary. Back then, she was just a a budding MP, Uh, not even an MP, actually, at that point. Uh, So I spent uh, many days working with her and fighting for the, the Loughborough seat. And uh, then I realised that uh, this wasn't really what I was geared for. I didn't really want to spend my life working in British politics and knocking on doors and asking people um, what their uh, what time their bins left on a on a Wednesday or whatever, and uh, if they've got any complaint for Nicola. So instead, I actually then I as you say, I applied for the MDC. It was on, uh, it was on a chance. It was on a, almost a, on a whim because I discovered them while I was studying. And when they got back to me and I spent so much time over there working with a guy called Senator David Coulter, a human rights lawyer who um, did amazing work in the 1980s highlighting all these terrible crimes. Uh, because I can't, if people don't, haven't heard about it, the Gurukundi was uh, a time of extreme violence where Mugabe's uh, North Korean trained thugs Um, went into the Numbeli areas and killed tens of thousands of people, often throwing their bodies down mine shafts uh, to hide the extent of the murder. And David uh, at the time was a budding, uh, was actually probably the same age as me actually at the time, was just a young man who uh, wanted to raise awareness for the crimes. And he did an amazing job of doing that and and brought a lot of attention in the West towards the, uh, the crisis. Many years later, Uh, He was now a senator in the Zimbabwean parliament. He was fighting for the MDC, the movement for democratic change and against Rob Mugabe. So for me as a young man, taking inspiration from what he did in the 1980s, um, I just wanted to go out and just see what I it's one of those things. And funny enough, this is actually uh, you write about this, too, that um, I went to Syria in 2014, knowing that I could do something, but not knowing exactly what, knowing that, okay, Syria is being ripped apart by a violent civil war. I've learned who the participants are. I know that the Kurds are fighting ISIS, that these people believe in secular democracy. They're good guys. They're not on the British anti-terrorism list, because that would have stopped me from going. Um, Definitely. Uh, So once I knew that, and I knew that the, the the battle lines were so clear cut uh, and the divide between good and evil was so transparent and so obvious that uh, I realized that I could use my privilege as a British guy, as someone who's articulate, who could go out. Fight alongside them and draw attention to them. Uh, I knew that there was a chance. There was a chance there. There was something good that I could achieve. Um, and very similar to Zimbabwe, way back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I um, took a chance, went over to help. And in Syria, in twenty fourteen, when I was twenty seven years old, I took a chance and went again as well.
0: Yeah, so just mm-hmm. into the build, build up of that. Then, Marco, we, we talked about it briefly before we before we we clicked the the record button. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you remember? The sort of feelings running up to sort of volunteering to go to Syria because obviously you was working in London mm-hmm. um it was kind of your job at the time to to sort of keep an eye on what was going on worldwide because it had an effect on your day-to-day job um c- can you remember the first time the the, the Syria conflict the Iraq conflict and, and ISIS starting to rise came, sort of came across your
1: um sort of sort of bows sort of interest? yeah well, actually, and it's, it was good to talk, because you and I were, yeah, as you say, chatting before, you and I are a, a slightly different generation. So I'm I'm a real millennial. Um, so I grew up very much in the war on terror. Um, and you, you got, you were very much in the service, in the British armed service um, uh, at the time where George Bush was in power, the war on terror kicks off, uh, you do the time and then you leave. Uh, I uh, my generation is a little bit strange a lot of us went to Afghanistan um, in fact, my f- friend Josh Lee was wounded in Afghanistan. So, um, uh, and actually, I actually have a huge amount of sympathy with millennials, by the way, because we're often seen as uh, the weaker generation. <laughs> uh, but actually, we've got, the, we've got the rough end of the war and terror, the rough end of the uh, the recent financial crisis and everything else. So uh, I take pride in saying I'm a millennial. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're just, just a little bit, you're out of that, aren't you? Um, yeah. So uh, and why I'm telling you the story is that um, uh, by being a millennial, by growing up, um, you were fighting the war of terror. I was watching it on TV as a child, pretty much. And um, so you're heavily influenced by it, uh, heavily influenced by it. Uh, So I knew who the Kurds were in Iraq. I knew the history of Iraq, uh, primarily because uh, I read it on TV as a child and I I studied at university. Um, So. I knew a lot about the uh, the conflict and the rise of ISIS and the rise of terrorism in the region. I didn't know the exact. Um, it was a journey of discovery in terms of um, who the Kurds were in Syria and what they were fighting for. But in 2014, when I was just working in the city of London in foreign exchange, as you say, I was reading the newspaper and... Um, Uh, but fully aware of what was going on in the region and upset by it, wanting to learn more and then uh, discovering that these people were then calling for volunteers. So as soon as I heard that they were calling for volunteers to go out and fight ISIS and join them, I did a lot more research into who they were. And it turns out that the Kurds, Uh, had formed a group called the YPG and the YPJ. That's the People's Protection Units, is pretty much what it translates as. And these Kurds were basically just fighting for their homes. They had the wolf at their door. ISIS um, in in the summer of 2014 exploded onto the world stage. They took Mosul uh, with just 300 fighters, defeating an army of uh, of something like 10,000 Iraqi conscripts. Um, There was a crucial period of 100 days Uh, From the rise of the taking of Mosul to the beginning of US airstrikes. And in those 100 days, ISIS took something like 40% of Iraq or 50% of Iraq and something like 40 to 50% of Syria. They completely destroyed the border between the two countries, the old Sykes-Picot border, which was created a hundred years before by the British and French. And and they established what they called the Caliphate, the Islamic State. And um, they declared the Caliphate, which was a very smart move. It appeals to conservative Muslims all around the world. Um, It creates in them a duty. Um, And in many respects, that's where ISIS separated itself from previous terrorists. Al-Qaeda was very much uh, an organization that aspired to a caliphate. Its golden years were ahead. It was a struggle that they had to fight for, a jihad that they had to achieve in the future. The Islamic State said, we are here and we are now. There was a sense of urgency to their violence and to their recruitment. So obviously the response to that from terrorists all around the world was immediate and massive. Tens of thousands of people flooded into the country, a thousand from Britain. So seeing this happen, happening, knowing um, what I did before, which was how this was coming about and a little bit about the history and then reading about its current, um, the current crisis, I realised that something had to be done and with britain not doing anything with america taking 100 days to take airstrikes in iraq alone and not not in syria it would take a few more weeks for them to bomb in syria it would take another year for britain to bomb in syria by the way after a after uh, several i won't mention politicians names but several attempts by uh, politicians to completely obscure and to uh, misdirect the public into thinking that we weren't fighting ISIS and that innocent people would die. But in reality, uh, it was just a slow response to ISIS. And when you're slow in a crisis like this, the Yazidi people, tens of thousands of people are going to be gunned to death. Women will be sold into sexual slavery. And I was just angry, incredibly angry. So um, I wanted to go out in the spirit of internationalism and fight back.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> to, to talk from an ISIS point of view, they were very clever as well in their sort of marketing and PR approach, yeah. weren't they? they? They obviously used um, Mohammed Mwazi uh, Jihadi John as, as a sort of centrepiece um, to their murderous activities in, in the region. And they attracted a lot of uh, European fighters via social media, didn't they? They, uh, they exploited Twitter and, and various other things. So, you know, they, they were very clever in their approach to publicising the caliphate. And like you said, the, the duty of... Um, of of people to go out and join the caliphate. So mm. j- just one, one bit that's always struck me when I've heard your story, because like I said to you before we came on air, I, I feel like I'm tied to Iraq. I've been so much time there. I, I do keep an eye on it. And I remember watching the very first programs of Fighting ISIS about Western volunteers. And then obviously I remember seeing your name and, and other, and other um, Western names that were out there. Um, how do you go about contacting the YPG, the YPJ? Mm. And, and offering your services as a Western volunteer to go out and, and fight against this, this murderous gang. How, how did that come about?
1: Well, I um, I was just working at, in my normal job. And um, as you said before, my job was to sort of follow the market. What's moving the market? What's moving um, international discourse? Where, where, is, um, where is the news heading? And the talk at the time was of ISIS. And uh, ISIS had an incredibly strong propaganda department that... Um, uh, did several things. One, it recruited. Uh, but number two, it uh, it plumbed the depths of depravity. Uh, this was all... There's a man called Zikawi, which many people would remember as um, a terrorist leader in Iraq that was eventually killed by the Americans in something like 2006 or something. I can't remember when. Um, but he... Uh, originally from al-Qaeda, created the Islamic State of Iraq, and actually pioneered the extreme violence that would become the uh, the norm in Iraq after the uh, American occupation or the American invasion. And um, he did things like attack schools. It, it, in, in, for some people, um, it seemed counterproductive what he was doing. He was attacking children decapitating them, putting their pictures on Facebook, targeting um, Shiites Muslims, targeting journalists and humanitarian workers. But it was designed for several things. One is it incited an extreme amount of fear, which would later come in useful when they're facing the conscript armies of Iraq and Syria, who many of them actually fled as soon as they realised ISIS were on the warpath. But actually, um, it did another thing, it incited hatred. Uh, and hatred is what ISIS thrives off. And if you divide or put a wedge between communities, between the Shias and the Muslims, uh, sorry, excuse me, the Shias and the Sunnis and other groups, um, it tit, to, tit for tat violence uh accelerates you get into community uh, violence and hate and that's where isis thrives and um uh all this propaganda they all that they had learned over 10 years fighting in iraq suddenly came to a head with the, the birth of their so-called caliphate and uh and the western media loved it we sucked it all up every single day new images of extreme violence was put all, all over the British press. Um, and uh, obviously the reaction of people was disgust and horror, as was mine. Um, and I suppose what pushed me over the edge and what the difference between my disgust and horror and your disgust and horror or other people's disgust and horror is that I realised that I could do something about it. And that, uh, and that came in many different forms. The, most, the, the greatest form that I took was um, the Kurds themselves actually called for volunteers uh, on Facebook. And the fact that I saw that... Uh, was the first rung of the ladder the other rungs of the ladder were um, my own sense of internationalism Um, uh, there's many there's rungs of the ladder that people might agree and disagree some might say well one of the rungs of the ladder is is extreme stupidity for going out Uh, but uh, uh, a sense of adventurism sure took took a hold so there's many different reasons It's, it's sort of i've often described it as life on earth Earth being in the Goldilocks zone, uh, not too hot, not too cold. And that's how life developed. (coughs) Just perfect for me. It wasn't too hot, it wasn't too cold. Um, i had money i um, uh, i had the means to go i had the way to go which was the kurds were calling for volunteers saying that once you uh, commit to coming we'll actually pick you up at the um at the sort of airport and we'll transfer you across the border so um yeah it was a very simple process um the biggest process the biggest hurdle was actually coming to terms with my own mind of saying actually is this what i want to do is it is there something i can achieve by doing this and how will this affect my family at home if I do do this um, and once I'd come to terms with that in my own mind the rest was actually fairly simple.
0: Yeah I think that's an interesting point that I kind of want to touch on the mindset of yourself because having having been deployed twice uh, in totally different circumstances uh, obviously as a soldier with the full backing of the, the British might and the coalition might it's a, lot, it's a lot different to what you went and did but I still remember the evenings before deploying, you know, the, the 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 moments you have to yourself and you're left with your mind and, you know, you, you were well-versed in what ISIS were doing in the region. I was well-versed in potentially what a war might um, entail. You know, how kind of – how did you get your head around that? How, how difficult did you – or didn't um, – I, I kind of liken it to – you have to kind of come to peace with yourself that, you know – it was my job in my case that I had to go. Obviously, in your case, it was a sense of duty to go and you know assist people that needed help. But you know, in your in your mind, how did you how did you come to terms with that? That potentially, you know, you 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 might upset your family. The consequences of it, if it went wrong um, could be far-reaching. You know, what, what was your mindset open to going?
1: Well, I think it, it came in different ways. I think one of the key ones is that. Um, I didn't. There was the acceptance came when I was in the safe house in Suleimanir, northern Iraq, um, because I um, I made that commitment to go. And actually, it was only a couple of weeks before I was actually on a plane and going. So once I made that commitment, there was no stopping me. I had all, I had plenty of money. I had uh, I was single or I, I had a girlfriend, but we split up. Um uh, by because of my decision to go. And um, uh, so there was nothing holding me back is, except for the desire not to hurt my family. But I'll come to that in a second. So once I got on that flight, I had the anxiety. I was looking out <clears> the window, plane <throat> thinking, is this a, is this a scam? And I, I tried to do I tried to look into it. The Kurds themselves had um, had their own Facebook pages. They were having, I wasn't the first volunteer to go, by the way. So other international volunteers had gone to fight in Syria. And I watched them and saw them take a photo in Salamanir, take a photo in in a YPG uniform in Syria, and then uh, them giving sort of interviews. So I sort of knew that I could trust the Kurds because they were helping these other people get in um but at the back of your mind you're thinking is this some sort of elaborate scam is is has this group been infiltrated by isis whereby they're luring western volunteers into syria uh into iraq sorry and then they just capture me at the airport and that and, and then i'm on every newspaper and i'm and uh and not only will i face a grisly, grisly end but I'll be deemed by the whole world as the stupidest man on the entire planet who got lured out by ISIS to, uh, to be one of their prisoners. And and when I was on that flight, all this was going through my mind. And then when I turned up at the airport, went through security, a guy met me at the airport, a Kurdish guy. He, he turned to me and said, uh, oh, by the, way, the my pronunciation of my name is Mesa, which is not my real name, by the way. Uh, my real name is Harry. Uh, but I chose Mesa Gifford. Um, primarily to keep my family safe. I just chose the name at random um, and uh, knew that I couldn't use my real name, my real identity while I was out there. So this guy comes up to me and he goes, are you Mesa, like this? And I was—I uh, just simply said, no, and just carried on walking. Because one of the agreements was <coughs> a picture of myself. But this guy comes up to me and goes, are you Mesa? And I was just like, nah, nah, sorry, mate, and carried on walking. And this poor bloke looked incredibly confused, comes running after me, finally with a photo. Out. And I was like, yes, I am Mesa, let's go. And again, you're in the car. I'm sitting on the front seats, prepared to grab the driver by his head and smash into the window. They weren't going to take me alive. Let's just say that much. It's preparing to spring from the vehicle, preparing yourself for extreme violence. And then you get to the safe house. And as soon as I walked in and saw the Kurdish flags on the wall, suddenly I thought, well, ISIS aren't going to go through this much effort to kidnap me. If they're going to kidnap me, uh, I'd already have a gun at my head already. And so I realized this with the right people. And then came a realization that um, I put my entire life into strangers' hands, strangers that I'd met on Facebook, which is a, uh, which is an extremely stupid thing to do. But I'd, I'd survived. And... Um, so more than that, I'd survived. And I now could, I had to sort of say to myself, I have to put all of my faith in the Kurds. Like uh, I've trusted them with everything That means that's dear to me, including my very life. So if I can do that, I've got to keep trusting them. And if I had, if I didn't trust them, I had no business in being in Syria. I would have, I should have just, I would have turned back straight away. And once I realized I trusted them, that I had to put my life again and again in their hands, um, that realization just switched in my mind. And all I had to focus was fighting ISIS. Um, And another thing, of course, is realizing what the risks are, that you would die. Um, And once you've come to terms with that, Uh, That's fine. Um, And the other, of course, is your family. And I didn't tell my family that I was going to fight ISIS. Instead, I lied to them and said that I was going to work for charities in in Syria and Turkey. Um, The reason I did that was to keep them safe. I didn't want for the next six months, seven months while I was in Syria for them to be tortured by me being out there. but on the flip side, I knew that their pain would be magnified if uh, if I did die, because they'll be so confused. He died on the front line in Syria. How? How? Mm. Why? Why? And that would torture them for the rest of their lives. My problems would be over, but the life sentence would be with my family. Um, but on the flip side, uh, by keeping them ig- uh, by by telling them I could talk I torture them for six months and I can come back and I suppose that was in my mind was why don't I not tell them and if I survive they'll they'll be none the, none the worse and they'll be fine um, the risk I I'm taking now is that if I do die their their pain will be magnified and it's just a um, yeah you just weigh it up and um, I weighed up everything everything from losing my life to destroying my family's life to to um, to everything and realized that on the good side I could go out I could help local people normal people who have the wolf at their door I could fight back against an evil that is literally the very opposite of me ev- opposite of everything actually that we in Britain hold dear sort of democracy, sort of friendship, uh, family, everything that you that you would associate with good. ISIS is the complete opposite of. Um, so it, as a millennial, as uh, if my generation is tasked with fighting the war and terror and actually all the rest of it, I'm happy to go out as a volunteer in the spirit of George Orwell and all the rest of it and just fight back against ISIS. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of where I was at at the time.
0: So when you landed at the safe house in northern Iraq, um, were there many other Westerners there? You know, how sort of were you? Were you with none? So how, how yeah. did you manage with the with the language barrier? Was there a language barrier? Because the, yeah. the other thing as well that um, a lot of people gen- probably don't realize if you've never been to that region that the, the quite English is quite frequent out there. A lot of them do speak quite quite reasonably good English, where you can hold a conversation and they do understand. Was that you know sort of what you experienced?
1: Yeah, well, it's uh, absolutely. English is a universal language and also friendship and kindness is a universal language as well. And you'll know this as well. And actually anyone who's travelled abroad or actually had to work with people that you don't speak the same language, you come, in, you become quite tactile, don't you? It's like you walk into a room, there's it, a coach bloke there, you put your arm around him, you hug him, you, you ca- clap him on the back, you're showing pictures of your family um, and, it, and war. And 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 soldiers will appreciate this. Although I'm not a soldier myself, although I fought, um, but soldiers certainly appreciate this. That war makes you become best friends with people in a single day. It's it's something that I can remember at school and university. You turn up on your first day and you've got best mates in the first couple of hours, and it feels like you've been best mates for years. In real life, that's not the, that's not the case. Um, but bizarrely, the army and warfare and in and in horrible situations it becomes the case um and i would i would i would make a thousand best friends in syria over the three years and uh the language barrier just wasn't a problem first of all from a um from a simply war fighting perspective as soon as i cross that border and, and i suppose i'll get to how we cross the border and all the records all the rest of it in a second the first tabor i was put with the first unit i was put with um, had five foreigners in it um, and there was about 20 or 30 kurds in the tabor and maybe only one of them or two of them spoke uh, a spattering of english so what the foreigners decided to do was they'll say right well we we're a fire team in ourselves. so we've got to work with the those that speak english within the units but we've got to stick together and we've got to make this work um, and so you come up with your own processes and how to f- fight with locals. And actually, it's remarkably simple. Uh, when you pick up words like fire, move, get down, uh, mortar dash, um, or stay or five minutes, 10 minutes, there's 20 guys, if you, th- Those really simple basic Kurdish words, you don't need to discuss politics and, and how, or how good your coffee tastes and all the rest of it, what you really need to know is just a few simple words to actually operate in a fighting environment. And that comes onto the crux of it. And that is that uh, this is not a professional military. This is not, uh, you're you're not, well, I wasn't a professional soldier. Many of the international volunteers were, by the way, and many of them did serve in their respective militaries. But the organization that you're joining is a militia. They've had, uh, uh, many of them, I turned up and I, my time in the cadets at school uh it gave me more military experience than some of these kids who had been who'd literally come straight from the mountains, 18 years old, rifle put in their hands, uniform is put on. So like three weeks of training, much of it ideological, they've probably shot the rifle twice, and then they're shoved towards the front line. Because this is a war that is um is about survival. Their entire community, their entire region will be burnt, raised to the ground, women enslaved, men shot in ditches. This is um annihilation time this is the end of days for them so um by me turning up the fact that i um am well read the fact that i'm a fit healthy uh young man puts me in a my, just as strong a position as the as my fellow Kurd. and obviously i learned pretty damn quickly alongside the, the the foreigners so you manage to survive in in really difficult environments and if you again if you don't you go home and uh, believe me, hundreds and hundreds of international volunteers uh, came out to Syria. Uh, some survived, uh, some thrived, some failed miserably. So uh, it was a mixed bag. So to the getting into Syria, then the, the crossing of the border, can,
0: can you just talk us through, uh, if you can talk us through how, how that happened?
1: Yeah, well, it's. Um, I was in the safe house. They put me into a vehicle Uh, then literally the next day they they filled me up with tea and back then i didn't drink tea didn't drink coffee or anything like that uh all my mates are in the army said all we do is drink tea like i've got to get a brew on and all the rest of it i understand it now because these curves were forcing tea in my mouth and i was just being nice i was just like just don't say no I'll eat a dead cat if they put it in front of me, because I just want to be friends with these guys. Um, within 48 hours, I, was, I became addicted to tea and coffee, which is now a problem if I'm holding up a coffee cup now, uh, a problem that blights me to this day. Uh, but the next, So after becoming friends with the, the people in the safe house, they stick me in a car, they drive me up into the mountains of northern Iraq, and the Kurds there, and again, this is something that I, did, I was ignorant of at the time, the Kurds at the border said to me, uh, uh, you'll have to cross tonight or maybe tomorrow in the middle of the morning morning and i said why isis is here and they said no 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 it's, it's dangerous though and i was like bandits isis what what, what is going to hurt me and they said uh, peshmerga and i was like peshmerga the, the peshmerga are kurds and it was the, my first um glimpse into the political differences between the kurds in syria and the kurds in iraq and uh, it's just it's not a big part of my story but it is um a factor that's blighted uh the Kurdish people over many years is that they were incredibly divided people, um, politically I mean, Uh, and it was just a shame that the Peshmerga had closed the border and the Syrian Kurds were fighting for their survival and right at the time where Kurdish unity was needed, the Peshmerga, for political reasons, cut the border and wouldn't allow anyone to cross. And we're arresting anyone that did. And it even had been accused of shooting people that attempted to cross. So this was my first taste of Syria. And it wasn't even fighting ISIS. It was it was the allies. It was the good guys fighting each other. And. Um, you can imagine the culture shock of getting in that vehicle, opening the back door, looking inside, and it being rammed with weaponry, like 30 AK-47s, there's rockets sticking out everywhere, sacks of ammunition. And my job as well was to help them carry this stuff into Syria. Um, And we drove towards the border. We swerved off the road, came up to a river, which uh, later turned out to be the Tigris, I think. Um, And out of the darkness, the thrum of a motor, the boat comes over. And uh, instead of me jumping on and going into Syria, I think the first reminder of what I was heading into got out. And it was dozens of horribly injured men and women, um, people with gunshot wounds to their legs, to their guts, to their shoulders. Um, and they were all heading to Suleiman and Erbil for, for medical treatment. So the first thing I had to do was help carry these people to the vehicle, and then get my weapons into the into the boat and then across the river they went first because they were far more important than the people at this time uh, and then once the weapons were over on the other side the the boat came back and picked me up and the my first glimpse of syria the first time i trod on uh, syrian shores was one o'clock in the morning um, with uh, 10 or so other kurdish volunteers from iraq um in a minibus driving into the mountains of syria to go to a to a camp for the first time um, where, yeah, my first, then the next next morning on the top of the mountain, I actually woke up, looked out, and the beautiful views, Rojava, the the, the Kurdish region of Syria, stretched out before me, incredibly flat. It's called the Fertile Crescent of Syria. And uh, in the distance, you could see Sinjar Mountain where the Yazidis had been chased up to. And Sinjar Mountain really was the front line. So you could see the front line. You could see the border with Iraq. You could see the front line. And you knew how how much the Kurds were being pressed. At the time, when I arrived, the Kurds were losing. So uh, it was a very difficult time. And almost immediately, th- they threw me into the action. So in, in terms
0: then um, of training, you know, yeah. obviously, I'm assuming, and it's only an assumption, never touched a weapon before, uh, never, never fired a weapon
1: Uh, Yeah, I had. I I had fired um, sort of machine guns and rifles before and stuff, uh, thrown dummy grenades. Even in the cadets at school, we used to do stuff like that. When I was working for charities in Africa, they taught us how to sort of, I I had guards there and I would ask them to strip their AK. And uh, obviously a very easy weapon to use. Uh, So I knew how to strip an AK. I knew how to fire a rifle. I knew how to zero a rifle. I knew basic concepts of um seeking cover moving to contact and uh working in teams and stuff but i I wasn't in any way a professional soldier at all um and so from the get-go the training camp they put me into for the first week or two um uh, it was all about familiarizing ourselves with the RPG with the AK 47 and the Dragunov sniper rifle. So it was mostly Russian weaponry that they were using. And um, but the real boon was not the limited stuff that the Kurds were teaching us. And they were far more interested in actually teaching us about what they who they were and what they were fighting for and actually trying to understand us as people, uh, rather than actually trying to teach us. Um, they, uh, the foreigners actually 80% of them had were military guys um and many of them from nato military so a lot of french a lot of brits a lot of americans so the first thing that we had to establish was some sort of commonality between the groups if you're nato then you you've got that commonality but there's other other countries there that weren't nato and there was other volunteers there like me who weren't former soldiers so we i had to listen and learn and keep my mouth shut from these guys um, and come up with a way to survive out there um and my blessing was not the couple of weeks that i spent in the 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 uh, the the that uh, training academy sorry, it was actually when they shifted us off to the front line, and I was incredibly lucky to be posted into a part of the front line which was incredibly quiet. It was it was basically called the Tilhamis front line. It was uh, a very long front line, maybe two to three thousand Kurds holding it. Opposing us was yeah, about two to 3,000 ISIS fighters, well-entrenched positions, incredibly well uh, dug in. And uh, the last time there had been any conflict in the area was about a year before when the Kurds had tried an offensive with about 3,000, 4,000 uh, fighters, and had been surrounded and, and suffered like 100 casualties, 200 dead, and it, it the, the, the assault had pat, patted out and they'd had to retreat. Um, and this time, though, there was talk that the Americans were helping this time, and there would be air support, and that air support would be crucial to take out the tanks that that the year before had encircled them um, and caused so many casualties. So, but I was put on the front line where we were just still waiting, and uh, I my first glimpse of ISIS was just through binoculars. I mean, they didn't even shoot us and I I, um, uh, and when you're I was 27 at the time I'm 33 now and I I've spent three years in Syria fighting in those early days you're you're very much like I just want to I just want to fight just like us to the front line I want to do what I came here to do you're like um, and over those following months when you when there is extreme boredom and weeks and weeks of just doing nothing that the only way I can describe myself is like a dog on a leash, like literally having um, uh, something in my mouth, holding me back while I'm frothing at the mouth, trying to fight and wanting to fight and and feeling that the Kurds are just holding us back. Uh, But the Kurds were very much like, no, 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 we don't fight them. They don't fight us. These Kurds were very clear. We don't want any trouble sort of thing. And I just, at first I was like, this is, this is crap. This is shit. I can't believe that I'm here doing this. And then, The months passed and all I was doing was training with these uh, with this American guy called Bruce, who's a uh, he was in the uh, US Ranger, incredibly well trained soldier and uh, later became a policeman specialising in uh, sort of kicking down doors and busting drug dealers and stuff so he was incredibly incredibly good at what he did uh, my another guy nathan was two weeks out of uh two rep out of the french foreign legion he was a paratrooper uh british guy spent seven eight years in the in the uh, french foreign legion so there were some decent guys in our team incredibly uh, strong guys and working with them coming up with our own processes um was a boom because i know many international volunteers that sadly did not have what I had when I came to Syria uh, arrived in Syria, got packed off to the front line in Raqqa or Mambesh and other major cities and within a month shot in the head or blown up by an ID or whatever. So um, though that first month or two in Syria was incredibly formative for me. It was incredibly important. And um, it, and from there, um, uh, after several months of being on this quiet front line, the Kurds announced the major operations, and the battle for Tel Hamas began. And that was actually the first time I, I saw combat.
0: Yeah, I think the casual listener might might find that a little bit strange, but I can certainly um, I can certainly agree with you. I know certainly on my second tour of Iraq, it was a winter tour, and for those who not aware fighting generally dries up in winter um because it's cold and wet which is probably not what people think of a sort of desert region but yeah we was exactly the same we were stuck in a camp that was getting mortared and um rocketed on a regular basis because that's just what they did to sort of keep us on his toes a little bit but yeah you, you get frustrated and you do get a little bit like that dog on a lead where you just you just want to go out and do something because mm. You feel like you're not achieving what you're supposed to be achieving, and you do all this training and you do all this build up, and, you, and in your case, you did all, you know, sort of reading, getting to know the Kurds, getting to know what they, you know, they fought for, and then mm-hmm. you find yourself not doing that, and it can become incredibly frustrating. Uh, and I certainly know from my uh, from my experience that when soldiers get bored and frustrated, then mm-hmm. generally it starts to affect morale. um But obviously, for, for you, it was probably a blessing in disguise that you know you, you could see a lay of the land, you could sort of start. Um, sort of acclimatizing and people might find that difficult but I certainly know when when I got dropped into um Kuwait before before we uh, went over the border into Iraq like I was 18 I'd never never experienced anything like that in my life and I landed out there and there'd been people out there for months already and I remember thinking wow this this is a first in, into the realization that it's actually a war um mm-hmm. so so you sat there for you know a month uh, a month and a bit and then they, they launched this uh, offensive. Can, can you talk about the offensive? What was your role in it?
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's so funny, actually, you should say that, because uh, when I arrived, it was uh, I crossed the border on New Year's Day. So I took a little bottle of whiskey over, and I can remember it being New Year's Day. Um, suddenly, 20, um, 2014 was turning into 2015, and I can remember toasting in the mountains of Iraq, just having a sip of this whiskey, thinking... What am I doing? Something screwing the lid back on? Uh, like this is mental. And when I arrived, expecting it to be desert, expecting it to be hot, instead it snowed on the second day. Not much, just a little pattering of, uh, of snow. That when we woke up, there was there was ice on the ground. And then uh, it turned to rain, and the 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 it became slush, and these wide open fields became slushy bogs. Uh, and mist would descend in the mornings and stuff. And it was just a very different environment than I expected. And actually the first thing that they said to us when I was stuck on that front line being bored out of my mind was they were like, we're not going to fight while the weather's so bad. They said the tank tracks will get stuck, which, uh, the, the vehicles will get stuck. We need to be moved fast and quick. We're just not doing it now. We have to wait every time it would we would have a period where like it will be a week of sun and it will feel like an English summer's day and we would think to us. And then there'll be talk of an operation. And then the next week it might rain or, and then the operations out the window. And then there was false starts. 500 Kurds turn up in um, armoured vehicles and Hiluxes. They roll up onto our position. Our, we, uh, our 30, 40 guys jump into our two two or three vehicles and uh, we join them. We drive literally one mile down the road. We turn around, come back, unload all our stuff, and we're out of that place again where we're literally saying to each other, uh, sc- excuse me, Andrew, fuck yeah, we're doing it. We're doing what we came here to do. And then. Um, we we come back and wait again for another two, three weeks. But then one day uh, they move us in the middle of the night uh, and they move us into Iraq all for the whole time. I can see Sinjar mountain, this glorious mountain on the horizon. It's dominating the horizon. And we, we go all the way to the slopes of the mountain. We unpack our stuff and uh, at a, at a school and they say, right, we're going on this operation. And, um, uh, it, and it's going to begin tomorrow. And sure enough, what woke me up was the distant explosions. Um, they began artillery uh, and also the Americans began bombing uh, the front line. And then uh, more much more than that, uh, while ISIS were flooding the front line with reinforcements, we were actually in Iraq at this point. And what we did was basically kind of like the Maginot line during the Second World War, uh, when the French built a huge amount of defences and all the Germans did was go around it. Uh was it the second world war uh first world war sorry but either way that's exactly what happened we went into iraq and actually came under the it un- came up on tilhamis from the south um and the, the isis front line collapsed literally on the second day thousands of fighters just streaming back into tilhamis and going back towards Tilbarak and towards the uh, towards the south um they just couldn't run fast enough um so my first day First couple of days on operation were going through deserted villages. Um, on that first day, ISIS had abandoned the position so quickly that the beds were still turned over and there was tea, there were, the kettles were on the fire, the fires had been built. Um, I even walked into one room and the tea had been spilt as if someone had just heard something and then jumped off his bed and ran off and spilt all the tea all over the floor. Uh, that's how fast we, we moved. And um, uh, and it was just chance, I suppose, because those first couple of days, my unit just didn't see any action. There was action in other parts, and in fact, horrendous action. You could hear the th- enormous explosions uh, that would rattle our windows of the houses we're sleeping in from just a, hun- uh, um, a sort of uh, like kilometer down the road sort of thing. And we began taking casualties down there. But where I, uh, what the plan was, was to leapfrog all the way to Tilhamis All the different units would just go take small villages. Next village, next village, because Syria and Iraq are better or the same. There's just villages everywhere. Every family has their own village or hamlet. So there's just, uh, they're so incredibly dispersed. Um, and all of them look exactly the same. Um, so it was the sort of the third day that we we came up on a village and uh, got onto a uh, uh, s- sort of a small scrap for the first time, which was quite a range, just shooting for the first time. And, and that was the first feeling, hearing those bullets sort of cracking overheads. Um yeah, I, I mean, it's just your reaction. And certainly the week after where we, it got a little bit more hectic, and uh, I suppose because there's, there's so much to say about those operations and the operations to come. And th- the only thing I could urge people to do is to read the book uh to, to see for yourself. But when you're hearing those cracks of the bullets over your head and you're shooting uh, at them and you're drawing their fire and you, s- you can see them running around, you can see your own guys moving forward, you, the, your first reaction is to burst out laughing or well, that was my sorry first reaction I started to laugh with Nathan uh in like an excited nervous laugh and yeah it's exactly I I uh, this is it this is what I wanted to do obviously uh things would change as the operations developed um, and uh, uh, certainly by as the years went past and the fighting got more hectic um, my reaction to certain incidences began to radically change but what's important to say is that in those early days um another massive benefit for me was that we the the fighting was in villages in hamlets it was at range uh, and we would just call in airstrikes so what we'd be doing is we'd just be shooting uh, they'll be sort of 600 meters away. We'll be six, you know, 600 meters from them. We'll exchange a bit of AK fire. Some a couple of RPGs will be fired, and all we have to do is wait for an airstrike and then move into a pulverized village. Um, and uh, because there was, um, and as we as we went into, into into more villages, the Americans began to trust us more. And more airstrikes came. Um, the Kurds were still recruiting, so thousands of fighters were flocking to the front line, and um, the war began to change a lot. In the second year and third year, it changed radically because we began entering the cities. And that's when the vi- the fighting changed massively. And hundreds of people began dying on a monthly basis and a weekly basis. So, um, uh, but in the first operation I ever took part in, uh, 3,000 Kurds fought and they, they lost 10 guys, um, killing hundreds of ISIS fighters. Um, ISIS were doing... Uh, they had one commander called Omar the Chechen launched an attack on uh, Tiltama with about four or five thousand fighters uh, around the same time that we were attacking Tilhamas to try and distract the YPG. Um, in doing so, they had, it was one particularly horrible incident that happened while I was there was they captured 300 Christians in a village that they overran during that operation, taking all of them back to Raqqa uh, to be sold uh, and for the men to be killed. Um which again is another reminder why you're there when you hear these stories of why the justification of what you're doing and, and, and why you're doing it. Um, but I'm, very lucky that I arrived in Syria, spent two months well, I'm sorry, a month and a half acclimatising, and then spent the first year fighting in very rural locations and mountainsides with air supports um, because it would set me up very nicely while I'm learning the language as well and acclimatising and learning from my fellow fighters it would acclimatise me massively for my second year when I fought in Mambish and my third year, particularly when I fought in Raqqa. so, um, yeah I suppose Part of what you'll get from the book and from my story is that actually I'm a very lucky guy um, because I yeah, I lucked out and I and you only recognize that luck afterwards, don't you? But uh, uh, I was a very fortunate not to be thrown into the deep end straight away or else you might not be talking to me
0: yeah true yeah um just again for the casual listener the difference between sort of rural fighting to to city fighting if you imagine um for anybody who's listening who lives near a city being in a city which i'm sure everybody will have done unless you live in a cave somewhere um it becomes a 360 degree battleground where you can literally be shot at from anywhere from rooftops Mm -hmm. and it becomes much easier to booby trap ied um make choke points that you have to go through and all that type of stuff so um that that is kind of the difference um M- moving on, then on to the sort of city fighting in the your second and, and third tour. You touched on it then that your mentality, or certainly your approach to certain things, had had started to change. And there's there's um there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there, obviously, with the amount of fighting that British troops and American troops have done in the last sort of decade uh, with Iraq and Afghanistan. That um you know war changes people. Um, w- what changes did it make to you from getting out there? you know, early doors, you know, with, with a real sense of purpose um, to go and assist the Kurds to, to then later on to the
1: hefty fighting in the cities. I suppose... Um... Uh, one thing that I would always reiterate is that I, I'm not a professional soldier. I went out in the spirit of internationalism to stand with local people, do what locals do. And, and I can remember saying that to the first general, the first uh, Kurdish commander I met in Syria. I was like, um, I was like I've come here to, to help, to show solidarity. Send me where you gu- you send your own guys. I will learn Kurdish and I'll, uh, and I'll uh, be here until ISIS are kicked out of here. Um, but I also knew, and I reiterated to the commander at the time, that actually uh, my real value to them is actually being a voice, is actually talking about my experiences, writing articles and that sort of stuff. And I did that from almost day one. From As soon as I arrived, I began feeding information back to the UK press saying that, do you realise while the politicians are saying, oh, in utter despair, what are we going to do? There's After years of Iraq and Syria, there's war fatigue has set in. The, the politicians just don't want to get bogged down in a war against ISIS. Um, and uh, there's even a massive debate in, in the British Parliament whether or not we should bomb in Syria at all, which was mental, because they 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 literally debated the pros and cons of bombing uh, ISIS in Syria. Um uh, And people just got the wrong end of the stick. They thought maybe we were bombing communities or bombing Assad or bombing the other rebels. But no, the, the question was, we're going to start bombing uh, the Islamic State in Syria, yes or no? And uh, many people were saying no. And for, for me, it was uh, torture. Uh, because I could see local people uh, on the front line, thousands and thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, on holding this, this front line against ten thousands of fanatical jihadists who have captured h- billions of pounds worth of machinery. Um, they, they captured most of their own, so they captured like 600 Humvees. They captured. They even captured 40 heavy artillery pieces um, that the Iraqi army had only just bought from the Americans. They bought, they, they captured huge amount of tanks um and um i mean these people had an army and uh, people don't like calling them a state they don't like um they don't like giving them the legitimacy of calling them the islamic state they often call them dash or the so-called islamic state But in reality, they had an area of land the size of Britain, pretty much. They had something like seven to eight million people under their control. They had tens of thousands of fighters, I think 40,000 or 50,000. It depends who you listen to and how many fighters they had who had a a uh, huge amount of billions of pounds worth of weaponry. So in a very short period of time, within four months six months, the Islamic State had created a functioning state with a billion dollar year revenue in, oils, in oil alone uh, that's not to mention the millions of pounds they, that they got from looting all the agric- um, the archaeological foundation of Iraq and Syria looting all the museums and selling those in the black market um, selling, even selling Yazidi girls they, they started selling them back to their families uh, for 7,000 8,000 bucks per child uh, per per Yazidi girl. So um, it's remarkable how much. And actually they also began buying a huge amount of weaponry from the FSA who were fighting Assad in the south. So it's as if two wars began in Syria at the same time. In the south Assad around Damascus the 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 the, the, uh, the dictator the Baathist president of Syria was fighting against the FSA the Free Syrian Army which was a many which was many different groups most of them jihadist groups and deeply unpleasant, supported by Turkey and Saudi Arabia and others, Um, they were fighting each other to the death around Aleppo and other places. But in the other side of the country, around Raqqa, um, and then even into Iraq now and Mosul and other places, is the Islamic State. And the Islamic State is fighting the uh, Iraqi government, the Peshmerga, and the Kurdish YPG. They're not really fighting anyone else. Uh, Assad will make a big deal. Every time he takes a small village and kills 30 ISIS fighters, Uh, He would put it all over the news as if he was defending Syria from ISIS. But in reality, he didn't care about ISIS. In fact, was delighted when they rose up. Um, And he did as much as he could to help them in those early years, releasing thousands of prisoners from his jails, uh, fanatical prisoners, precisely because he wanted to Islamify or to uh, to create a fanatical Elements to the the groups that were fighting him. So then he could turn to the rest of the world and quite legitimately say um, I'm the best of a bad bunch. Like you might as well support me because look what we're facing here now Um, So Assad is delighted with the rise of Isis in reality Uh, The FSA is a hodgepodge of different groups Um, Many of them are al-Qaeda in in Syria basically and al-Qaeda and and the Isis they break they're they're no longer allied in fact they uh, sometimes an all-out war So um, the only people in Syria fighting ISIS are the Kurds, and um, they are incredibly powerful. And um, I suppose, yeah, just those first couple of... a uh, couple of months all i'm doing is trying educating the west on this reality um and saying to people look please support because these people are fighting for their homes if we um we have to destroy isis and we have to destroy them as quickly as possible because every day that isis keep a little girl in slavery and abuse her mentally physically sexually um is uh, I, I it honestly would keep me awake at night. Uh, It makes me feel sick. It makes me shake with anger, even to this day, that um, there was a Nazi state in Syria and Iraq, um, butchering and murdering thousands of people. And the West just didn't care um so that was my job it was to make the west care and the only way i could do that as someone who's a nobody is to actually fight is to actually say look uh, i'm a british guy i'm fighting isis um this is what my government should be doing and i'll tell you what and and please correct me if i'm wrong uh, i've got friends who are servicemen i would bet a million pounds i'd bet everything i own that a um that if you had asked If you'd canvassed the British Army, if you'd canvassed 1,000 Marines, let's say, in 2014, when when Sinjar was surrounded, there's 20,000 Yazidi girls up there. They're selling 1,000 girls in Raqqa at that time, checking their teeth, uh, prizing the youngest girls, um, and often killing the older ones that they couldn't sell. Um, If you'd asked 1,000 British servicemen, would you be prepared to go out to Iraq, kick the shit out of the Islamic State, Get those 20,000 girls off the mountain. You don't have to stay. I, I, I've never argued for British troops to invade or anything, but it's, it's um, but it, a limited strike just to help those people. I bet a thousand British soldiers would have stood forward and gone, fuck yeah, we'll do it. We'll definitely do it. But instead, the British government was, instead of having a Winston Churchill moment of, say, of saying to ourselves, right, targeted strikes, targeted intervention, uh, supporting the groups that actually need our help, instead of thinking like that, instead they're thinking, What are we going to do? We don't want to get bogged in another war. Uh, We want peace. All these nonsense declarations of saying, let's start negotiations with ISIS was absurd. Again, the first thing that ISIS would ask for as soon as you start negotiating with them is legitimacy, is existence. They're not going to negotiate themselves away. The first thing they're going to say is fine. We'll let go of it. We'll we'll release the 3000 girls. But you've got to recognise us as the... Uh, Rightful owners of Raqqa and other places, or you've got to leave us alone, you've got to stop bombing us, whatever. But either way, while we're talking absolute nonsense in the West, the people who were fighting and dying with the Kurds on the ground, and and those were the people I had to be with. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was, that's kind of, again, that's my headspace. That's where I was, and that's where I've always been.
0: Yeah, and certainly from doing a bit of research, because li- like I said before, I did kind of follow your story and the story of the Westerners fighting ISIS out there, because I do have an interest in the region in general. Um, but you came very, very close yourself. You, you mentioned about being lucky. I- I've heard the story of uh, a bullet hitting your your sort of body mm-hmm. armor plate. Can you just talk us through that?
1: Yeah, that was a particularly dark day. That go- I go into some detail in the book. In fact, uh, it was one of the first things I wrote after I got back from Raqqa. In fact, it was the only thing I wrote about this experience that um, I had a nightmare about bizarrely Um, that I literally woke up in the night in my, dreams i changed the scenario and replaced certain characters with family members bizarrely but it was i woke up extremely upset uh, and so thankful that my father was alive that it wasn't his body lying out in the road dead and uh, and uh, the only thing i could describe it to was first of all the trauma of the event but also having to writing about it i had to think and and that chapter is uh was so fresh in my mind um, every smell that i smelt every uh, every crunch of my boots against the gravel, uh, the tinkling of the cartridges, I can hear it all now in my mind. Uh, So it's it's literally ingrained in my head, even to this day. But when I wrote it just after Syria, that's why it's quite vibrant in the book. Um, And that particular night, ISIS threw everything at us. I mean, it was the height of Raqqa. It was, uh, I think it was September. Uh, To be fair, it was heading actually, the height of Raqqa certainly, but The month after ISIS would eventually surrender. That's why it's right at the back of the book. Uh, They would give up and leave the city. But um, it was very much uh, a very desperate time for ISIS. And my mission, which would only become apparent afterwards, was actually one of the defining missions of the uh, Raqqa battle. It was to cut the link between the stadium and the hospital. The stadium and the hospital were two powerhouses of the Raqqa battle. Um, It's where they, the hospital is where they treated their fighters. They knew that the hospital wouldn't be bombed or there would be limited air on the hospital. There was a thousand, there's about a thousand or five hundred civilians in the hospital as well. Um, and it was it was basically and also just the fact that it was a major hospital, a thick concrete walls, it was it, they turned it into a massive bunker itself. And the days that we tried taking that place back achieved literally nothing except for casualties um and on the other side you had the racket the stadium which uh they urged all the people who remained in racket to go to so again they they got in one place thousands of civilians and that's where they had their mortar pits that's where they had their command and control center uh obviously because that's where we can bomb but in those two major fortifications was a road linking the two which they fighters would frequently go through and my mistake, or our mistake, was to try and cut it. And on that particular day, ISIS just threw everything. And the only reason we survived was actually the Americans destroyed the region, the, the area, uh, they completely annihilated it. By the time we left, about f- 24 hours later, uh, there was nothing but smoking ruins everywhere. Um, but that particular night, I won't go into a huge amount of detail because it was it was 24 long hours, Is um, uh, was just a starts as things usually do, with intense silence and quietness. You've no idea what's coming. All you're doing is patrolling through the streets of Raqqa. And as we're patrolling, I can see faces of Kurds in the in the windows of buildings. And eventually, we get to the furthest limit of, the, of Kurdish control in the city. And uh, the first thing I encounter is these old men being searched. They're actually just putting their clothes back on. Um, and this small Kurdish patrol is bunched up around these two old men. And sure enough, my patrol, bunches up as well. We, we we find these old men and these old men are shouting in Arabic. One of them particularly is jabbering and pointing his finger up to the other side of the road. And I said to my friend, Abjal, I said, what the hell is he saying? And he said, well, he said his family's on the other side of the road. He said, they need us to go and rescue them. And the unit can't decide. They Half of them want to go help this family. They say they've got kids and they've got uh, there's women there. And the other half want us to carry on with our mission. And I can remember just thinking to myself, I'm standing in the middle of a street, we're all bunched up, and we're all speaking incredibly loudly, and we're in ISIS territory. I was like, "This is the stupidest thing ever, so I'm a little bit apart from the group because I don't want to be targeted, and all I'm doing is every now and again hissing, like, we've got to move. Come on, let's go, We've cover. just even if we have to have this conversation in a fucking building, let's do it somewhere else. And then my commander. Um, all of a sudden just says, uh something in Kurdish. And I have no idea what he said, but it, it, what I like to think he said is something along the lines of, fuck it, we're going or whatever, whether he was going to the building or rescuing this family, whatever. So he starts walking across the roads. The old, This old man goes as well. I, I don't see what happens to him. And uh, my friend, um, <clears throat> Demhart, with his heavy machine gun on his shoulder, looks at, um, at uh, Ocalan, the commander crossing the road and he immediately follows him. And I was like, "Well, these guys are is the commander, and he's moving. I'm going to go with this guy because he's my, not only he my not only is he my commander, but he's at least doing something. He's not staying in the middle of the fucking street. So I start crossing the road as well to follow uh, Ochalan. and then all hell breaks loose. Um, and again, <clears throat> you react even without even realizing. As soon as you hear the the the, 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 the extreme noise and the snapping of bullets around you." Um, I don't even know if it was – whether it was my brain firing. This is actually not in the book because I actually wrote in great detail how I felt at this time, which they then decided to shrink down, the editors, because they said it's too long, it's too bulky, you've got to get into it, you've got to tell them what happens. As I was – I spun so violently and so quickly that I – being top-heavy with all my body armour and magazines, I went crashing into the – I went a couple of steps, giant steps off the road before I – face planted incredibly hard into the ground. Uh, but while I was turning, it almost slowed down and I can remember seeing sparks just around me. Um, and I don't know if it was just, as I said, my brain firing or whether it's uh, sparks of the bullets hitting the ground around me, but it honestly, um, I felt nothing just, Instant reaction. Didn't even see Ochlan or Denhardt. and I smashed into the ground, crawled off the road, and the fo- lost my glasses. By the way, because that's another thing. I wear glasses. I wear. Con- I usually wear contact lenses for operations. I had ballistic sunglasses for the day, but at nights, uh, because uh, the, the the environment is very much like all right, we're going on an operation. I put my contact lenses in. Actually, we're not. Tomorrow, you take them out, you put your glasses. Actually, we are going in the operation. So it's very much you don't know what the fuck is going on sometimes. So me wearing my glasses was just a last-minute, like, screw it, I'll wear my glasses. Losing my glasses in that instant was, um, you can imagine, my sort of muttering moans and and squeals of frustration and fear once I'd done that, of, like, sh- fuck and then shooting down the road at where i thought the bullets were coming from and then just running into cover and then suddenly coming under fire again running into a building and then in the darkness um having to try and put my my contact lenses back in uh but thankfully because they are in my pocket it literally took like a matter of seconds but um what was horrendous and is that um Demha and Oxline have both been shot. Um, I'd been shot myself. It would it would transpire. The bullet passing through my body armour, hitting not actually hitting my body armour, it actually hit a magazine uh, on my chest, uh, punching straight through it, ripping it to pieces almost, and uh, ruining it and having to throw it away. Um, and um what came was just a very ferocious ISIS assault um much of it focused on the building next to us where the Kurds were another Kurdish unit was uh eventually so much so that we would actually have to convalesce and come in together and um the next morning they hit us with everything from suicide vehicles to um um and what was worse was that the americans just wouldn't airstrike to begin with because well first of all they said that they couldn't they said that all of them had gone home they'd retired for the evening the americans had um and what was supposed to happen was the brits and the french were supposed to take over apparently or something but they again they said that they had dropped them all or something or, or something could happen whereby they said okay you're gonna have to wait until morning so what happened uh so isis as soon as they realized that there was literally no airstrikes nothing was happening and they'd already hit us they sh- they shot us up they saw that our were were still lying in the streets, uh, they then started to having a real a real go. And suddenly, the environments of my first year of fighting at range of yeah, a thousand meters, sometimes not even an AK range, and you're just blatting away just for the hell of it, just to keep their heads down while, while you wait for an airstrike. Suddenly you're you're 10 meters away from them. So much so that you can hear them screaming, Ali Akbar! And then th- lobbing grenades at you and fucking just going nuts, these people were. Um, and um yeah you just have to survive and that's what I did um or I wouldn't be here today but that that's that particular evening uh, comes towards the end of the book and really I suppose as cli- a climax for the book because um uh, my blessing was that I it was a slow process getting into the fight and um uh, and it was just uh, lucky that um by the time I was in that environment I was suddenly incredibly comfortable Working and operating alongside the Kurds, so much so that I write in my book that I'm screaming Kurdish war cries in the uh, thing. You're literally shouting, uh, <laughs> you're just like shouting all kinds of shit back at the Islamic State. So much so that I actually started thinking to myself, I'm only going to shout Kurdish stuff because the last thing I want to do is scream something English. And then they go, oh, there's, there's Westerners there. Let's fight even harder. And then I'm responsible for us being overrun because they realize that an English bloke is screaming. So, um, yeah it was just uh that was i think i just sign. that's just a little example of what fighting became in racket it was just horrendous really bad and then you've got to, another thing before you uh, uh, before i let you speak sorry because i do speak a lot is uh and there's so much to say um is um the, the, this is not a professional military it's almost like the first world war um young men uh, many who've by the way, the Kurds were criticised for this and they had to pass a law saying that anyone under 18, it's illegal and you'll get arrested and kicked off the front line. But just like the young men who joined the British Army and turned up to the recruitment office at 14 years old and said, I'm 18, and often the recruiters were very much, uh, there's great stories of British recruiters looking at a 15-year-old lad and saying, I'll tell you what, young man, why don't you do a run around the, um, he said, how old are you? And the guy would go, oh, I'm 15. The guy said, have a think again. Why don't you go have a run? Come back, and I'm sure you'll be 18. Literally, they were saying shit like this to these young British lads in the First World War. That's exactly what the Kurds were doing. So sometimes in the first early days, you would see, like, a 17-year-old kid on the front line, and he's had four weeks of uh, training. He's shot his rifle four times because the bullets in those early days are so hard to come by. They're prioritised for frontline fighters. So um, – and there's thousands of fighters on one side. There's thousands on the other. There's tanks. And then particularly in the early days, there's no airstrucks. So it's two uh, equally sized forces, thousands and thousands of them having at each other from uh, and often taking sort of um, 40 casualties a day um, in uh, in a month, taking 400 casualties, um, taking uh, in Raqqa, I think they lost like 600, 700 guys dead. They lost a similar number of wounded uh, or had a similar number of wounded. They killed like 3,000, 4,000 ISIS fighters. Um, their bodies lying everywhere. They're just in the street. They're smoking. They're amongst the rubble. They're the same colour as the rubble. They're all white marble, like statues in the, in the city. And um, it became intolerable. The city became a brutal, bloody, violent place, uh, stinking, st- full of flies and ruined buildings. And it was, um, yeah, a pretty tough environment to be in. Yeah, I mean, I don't, want to, um,
0: I don't want to go over any more of your experiences there because I really, really want people to go and buy the book. Um, when you came home, Mesa, was there any was there any concerns that you may have become a target for ISIS back in the UK? Because obviously you were be- you became quite well-known through your um, sort of reaching back out to the press. What were your were concern about that when you came back?
1: Uh, there was. Um, I did little things like, obviously, I changed my name um, uh, to... Uh, hide my identity somewhat um i was sent i was sensible um utilizing my social media to broadcast what i'd done not what i was doing so not revealing my location Um, also had a discussion with counterterrorism police there's two types of conversation obviously you have with the counterterrorism police if you do something that i do one is my safety which is great i'm delighted and also i'm great with the other one the other one is who the hell are you uh, what have you done? Is it illegal and are you a threat, obviously? And um and I think very quickly they they determined that I was not. And then I went to Syria over three years, and I actually made three trips to Syria as well. Um, so I came back to rest and went back out to Syria again. And each time I was stopped by the British police, questioned quite heavily, and had my phone seized and all the rest of it. Uh, but each time they've never sought a prosecution and never actually attempted to pull my passport off me of or anything. And there's a good reason for that. One is actually it's not illegal fighting abroad. In certain circumstances, the the law is incredibly hazy. And that's one reason why I'd say it's just not worth pursuing stuff that I do. Uh, I've done, sorry, uh, because um, you could you get jailed you go to jail for a very long time even if your intentions are good so um uh, but but again through a mixture of luck and transparency and and honesty and um and with the groups that i chose to do uh chose to work with and and everything else uh they never uh, sought a prosecution or never thought that what i was doing was illegal so when i arrived back the conversation twisted into right let's keep you safe and an alarm was installed on in my house and all the rest of it but after a year or so you have these conversations and you you, you a little bit of intelligence work goes in and actually the threat against me is pretty low it's an except it's a more than acceptable level so much so that as far as i'm concerned the biggest threat against me is if i um on if i'm live on bbc news um and and my face is out there as a guy for isis and is campaigning to make laws in britain more stricter against terrorists that britain should be more proactive in fighting terrorists abroad etc if i have that interview live and then jump on the train and bump into a jihadi who happens to have a knife in his pockets um my as far as i'm concerned a random attack uh, a by chance attack is actually much more likely than them actually go looking into me and trying to find me certainly the islamic state has bigger fish to fry than than macy gifford so um and you take other precautions little things security cameras locks uh being careful but i mean you weigh that you again you know i'm not naive i knew that uh, i would paint a target on my back to some degree but um uh but that's not what you think about and and often there's an element of by the way selfishness involved in what i did but you weigh up the pros and cons of everything And you realize that you are motivated by good intentions and that to be selfless, to actually help other people, people who are strangers, you actually have to hurt the people closest to you, which is actually a very weird paradox um, of of really, yeah, to be selfish, uh, selfless, you have to be incredibly selfish, um, uh, ridiculously so. So um, I'm not bothered about the uh, threat against me. And it's actually very, very low is the answer to your question there.
0: So what uh, what are you doing now, then, Mesa? Uh, uh, you know, you're still quite uh, working with
1: the uh, the YPG, uh, the Kurds. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just still the books come out. I went after I left after I left Raqqa. I came back tired and uh, uh, and changed as well. Uh, like because um, I by the way, you lose weight and you, you become, like over the three years. I uh, I went from a 27 year old man. Um, who uh, worked in the city was still uh, maybe a little bit still immature. Maybe uh, like just like every 27-year-old, still, you're still quite young. And actually three years – I wrote this in the book – that three years will change you anyway, that when you get into your 30s and when you uh, enter a relationship and, and when you grow up a little bit, you change. But um what changed me even more was the was um was the time that I spent in Syria as well. And I think my changes are all positive. And actually I see my changes as positive too, uh, because I don't have post-traumatic stress. Um I don't um uh suffer from any problems now that I'm back in the UK. And actually um one of my first problems I encountered after RAC, I, I vividly remember, is um is actually wondering why I didn't. And actually worrying about: it. Am I cold? Am I? Am I? Is there something dead about me that I can hold a man in my hands and watch him die? And and hold? But I had my hand on a man's chest once and felt his heartbeat stop. And uh, and why do I not? feel horror at that and why do i keep saying to myself which everyone else says is toxic but seems to work for me is just don't think about it man like i don't i don't, I don't i've moved on I, I don't think about anything that happened to me in syria i just focus on my job and my writing and all the rest of it um and then i realized i read an article by a guy called johnny mercer uh, he's an mp for portsmouth it's, i like him he's a decent bloke um he talked about his experiences and he wrote an interesting article about post-traumatic stress. That, that actually not everyone f- suffers from it. Um, that it's uh, uh, that you can have these terrible experiences and and you can live with them and you can move on. And that helped uh, that helped me somewhat. And I can remember reading another article by a psychologist talking about trauma, and that and and talking about it was bizarre. They were talking about why does trauma even exist? Surely through evolution, uh, human beings would be better off numb. So surely that emotion should, should have been out of our biology a thousand years ago to help us more to cope now. And actually the opposite was true that actually the reason you experience trauma is so you don't forget that you, that you learn from that mistake and all the rest of it. So, uh, I came home and I was my own doctor and I realized that actually I could cope. But one of the things it did teach me is that, um, it gave me a huge amount of sympathy for those that do suffer from post traumatic stress that actually, um, saw worse things than me or um, lost someone more close to them than I, than the people that I lost in Syria, Kurdish people that I became close with, but were they my blood brother? Were they my, were they, were they my mate who was in the army with me, who I grew up with, who was my best friend who I saw every single weekend and then watched die or got blown up? No. So uh, when I, uh, when I think about post-traumatic stress, um, uh i'm just so grateful that i don't suffer from it and again and i keep saying this look, I, is it, am i lucky i don't know um uh, so uh, uh things could have gone south for me uh but uh, in syria but i uh, am very lucky uh, and through the, the family i've got the support i got there through the friendships that i made through uh work through realizing that i was there for a purpose realizing that i was helping people realizing that i had a future once i got back and everything else it it built up a defense within me to keep moving on and i'm very lucky to to, to be in that position yeah uh,
0: it's an absolutely incredible story mister i'll be honest um but again like i said I, I really want people to go out and buy your book uh, so they can get the the sort of full story uh where can people buy your book from
1: well, launching a book during the middle of the coronavirus is not the best idea. And I, uh, believe me, that was not my idea. It's been in the running for a while. So you can get obviously get it on Amazon. And Amazon's a great place to buy it because sometimes they have sales and stuff. The cheapest place to buy it, I've noticed, is Asda. So you can check it out there. It's four fifty. dollars Unfortunately, uh, for those that dislike large corporations and, and want to support local bookshops, because they're all closed they're just not there um uh, which is a shame because at a time where i should be giving lectures in schools and and, and talking and, and universities and talking to people and getting out there and showing people where our country is ripped apart by coronavirus and actually obviously um that is more of a concern than my problems with uh, getting my book out there but um yeah you can get it the best place to get it i think is is asda or amazon
0: that's absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, um, I'll stick it in the link to the bio of the podcast and I'll put it out on our social media as well. Um, that's obviously still on the grow at the moment. Uh, Mason, I'm not going to keep you for any longer, but uh, an absolute incredible story. I feel like I could sit here all day and listen to you talk about your experiences in Syria. Um, so I, I just want to say a massive thanks to you for for, for giving up your time and, and coming to speak to me about, um, obviously, your experiences. Uh, for the listeners, make sure you go out and buy uh, Mesa's book. I will... Uh, Put it in the link. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, listen to the other ones. I've got another one coming up on Saturday with a, a kind of a, a similar link. Um, So keep an eye out for episode five. But, again, a massive thanks to Mesa for his time. Big thanks to everybody who's listened. Uh, leave us a review. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever else I've uh, plastered this all over. Uh, so, yeah, so a massive thanks to everybody. Big thanks to you, mate. Uh, uh Take care, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Cheers. It's a pleasure uh,